1: and welcome to Writer's Live. Angie Kim moved as a preteen from Seoul, South Korea, to the suburbs of Baltimore. She attended Stanford University and Harvard Law School, where she was an editor of the Harvard Law Review, then practiced as a trial lawyer at Williams and Connolly. Her stories have won the Glamour Essay Contest and the Wabash Prize in Fiction, and have appeared in numerous publications. Miracle Creek is a thoroughly contemporary take on courtroom drama, drawing from her own life as a Korean immigrant, former trial lawyer, and mother of a real-life submarine patient. In Millennial Speak, Miracle Creek gave me all the feels.
0: <laughs>
1: In the language of literature, I was moved by each character's plight while experiencing the courtroom drama and memories with these people. I have goosebumps talking about it, and while thinking about chronic illness and the lives we create. As you will find while reading the book, quiet is only the beginning of, to use Angie's words, overwhelming sorrow and regret, a grief and yearning so deep it pervades your soul, but with a sprinkling of resilience, of hope. So please give a warm welcome to Angie Kim. Thank you. Um, So I thought I would
0: give you a little bit of of an overview from Miracle Creek, which came out exactly a month ago on April 16th, and then um, do a couple of readings from a couple of different passages that illustrate the different strands of my life that this novel is taken from, as well as illustrating some of the themes and issues that the novel delves into. So Miracle Creek is a literary courtroom drama about a Korean immigrant family and a young single mother who's on trial for murdering her eight-year-old son on the autism spectrum. Um, and Miracle Creek um, is the name of the fictional town in rural Virginia. Um, and Miracle Creek uh, is where the young family, I, I'm sorry, the you family, the Korean immigrant family, opens up a business called the Miracle Submarine. So what is the Miracle Submarine? The Miracle Submarine is not a real submarine. It's a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber, or HBOT. It's an experimental medical chamber, and it's a real thing. It exists today in this world. In hospitals, it's used for things like burns and carbon monoxide poisoning and gangrene treatment. And in the novel, and also in the real world, it's used as an experimental treatment that's become pretty popular as of late for things like um, autism, cerebral palsy, Lyme disease, infertility, and hearing loss. So in the novel, one day, four patients and their caregivers are sealed inside this H-bot chamber, which looks like a mini submarine, which is why we call it Miracle Submarine. And someone deliberately sets fire to um, the oxygen tank, which is outside the submarine tank. And so the oxygen tank blows up, there's an explosion, and it causes an uncontrollable fire. And so then um, some people are killed, and we fast forward a year where there's a murder trial going on. And so the readers are really following along. Um, And we become the jurors. And we try to figure out who set the fire and how did they set the fire and why did they set the fire. So I call it sort of a how, who, and why done it. And certainly that's one element of it and the thing that I hope makes this a page turner. But on the other hand, I really hope that this kind of a, murder trial frame is just sort of an entertaining way to delve into the lives of these characters. The people who are um, the rural um, displaced Korean immigrants in rural America who are isolated and who are longing for connection. And then on the other hand, the Korean, uh, the special needs parents who are in this community and who are longing for connection with other parents because they are no longer in that mainstream, normalized world of parenting. Um, so that's, in, that's Miracle's Creek in a nutshell. And um, the Miracle Creek is my first novel. And I just turned 50 exactly a month ago when my book was published. And so I've had a number of different careers, and um, different facets of my life are all woven into the narrative of Miracle Creek. Um, And the three strands that are really present most prominently, and I'll sort of go in chronological order, are number one, when I was 11, I was a Korean immigrant. I immigrated, I moved from Seoul, South Korea, to Lutherville, Maryland, which is not that far away um, and so that was, and I, I moved with my parents, um, I'm an only child, my parents actually had a grocery store in a really dangerous part of town on East Eager Street, and, um, it's, I've driven by, it's a lot nicer now, um, and it was a pretty dangerous part of town so you know there was bulletproof glass and you go we walk inside and there was really nowhere to do anything and my parents worked from 6 a.m. to midnight every day seven days a week and so they didn't want me around this dangerous store Um, so they had me live with my aunt and uncle who lived in Lutherville Maryland so I went from Going from this kid who was very poor, we didn't have indoor plumbing or anything like that in Korea, but we were always together, to this place in Lutherville, Maryland, which was like a palace to me because it had multiple indoor bathrooms, for example, and, you know, TVs and all sorts of things that I didn't have in Korea and couldn't have even imagined. And so, on the one hand, my life changed drastically for the better, but on the other hand, I no longer had my parents with me at all, Um, and I barely saw them. I think I saw them maybe a couple of times a month or something like that. So, you know, and I was 11, and I also went from this environment in which I was a pretty fluent and, you know, like smart kid, you know, in Korea, I was... In um, fifth, sixth grade, and all of a sudden I came here and I didn't know English. And so I went from being somebody who thought of herself as pretty smart to somebody who became sort of mute in a way, you know, and felt like I was deaf because I wasn't understanding anything that was being communicated to me and I didn't know how to communicate back. And even though I, could, I knew that this was a you know, temporary thing and that hopefully I would sort of you know, learn English quickly, and so I knew all of those things intellectually, but it's one thing to know that and another thing to sort of feel inferior and feel less than because you're in this community and in this environment when, where people are looking at you and feeling sorry for you because they obviously think that you're not smart because they think, you know, she doesn't know how to speak English. So, and I think we have this thing in our society about equating language with intelligence. Um, and I think that that really did a number, not only for me, but I could see that it, it really affected the self-confidence of my parents and I think most immigrants who come over here and not speaking the, the language So um, that was one strand that I tried to put in the novel. Um, And you know, at this point, I I think what I'll do is I'll read a little bit from a passage that sort of illustrates that sort of immigrant um, feel that um, I hope you will enjoy. Okay, so my novel is um, broken up into four days of the murder trial. And each of the days has different POV characters, um, so each chapter is from a different character. And this one is from Trial Day 3, so right in the middle of the novel. And it's from a character named Park Yu, who is the father of the immigrant family. Park Yu was a different person in English than in Korean. In a way, he supposed, it was ine- inevitable for immigrants to become child versions of themselves, stripped of their verbal fluency and with it, a layer of their competence and maturity. Before moving to America, he'd prepared himself for the difficulties he knew he'd experience the logistical awkwardness of translating his thoughts before speaking, the intellectual taxation of figuring out words from context. The physical challenge of shaping his tongue into unfamiliar positions to make sounds that didn't exist in Korean. But what he hadn't known, hadn't expected, was that this linguistic uncertainty would extend beyond speech and, like a virus, infect other parts. His thinking, demeanor, his very personality itself. In Korean, he was an authoritative man, educated and worthy of respect. In English, he was a deaf, mute idiot, unsure, nervous, and inept. Ah, uh, papo. This was the thing he regretted most about their move to America. The shame of becoming less proficient, less adult than his own child. He'd expected this to happen eventually, had seen how children and parents switch places as the parents age, their minds and bodies reverting to childhood, than infancy, than non-being. But not for many years, and certainly not yet, when Mary still had a foot in childhood. In Korea, he had been the teacher. But after his move, when he visited Mary's school, her principal had said, "'Welcome, tell me, how are you liking Baltimore?' Hawk smiled, nodded, and was deciding how to answer. Perhaps the smile nod had been enough? When Mary said, He loves it here, running the store right by Inner Harbor. Right, Dad? The rest of the meeting, Mary continued speaking for him, answering questions directed his way, like a mother with her two-year-old son. So that's sort of an illustration of some of the experiences that I've had myself that I Probably lifted straight from our lives and put into the novel. And I think that that's one aspect of the novel dealing with this Korean immigrant family and their background in Baltimore that I think is probably most sort of lifted out of real life and actually put in. Um, the other things I didn't actually, you know, really do that. It's fiction. There's not been a murder trial or an explosion in a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. Um, you never I, had the murder trial, you? I never had a, for, so for that's the next um, that I'll talk about is the, is the trial law, a law experience. So I was a trial lawyer. I never had a murder trial. Um, I was, um, I worked for a law firm in DC and so I did mostly, you know, Cases involving spats between a big company and another large company. I also um, represented and defended Georgetown Hospital and some of the doctors for uh, against medical malpractice claims and things like that. Um, the only time that I did criminal defense um, work or, or prosecution, but I, I never did prosecution, I only did defense, was um, as a student... I interned at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund working on death penalty cases. Death penalty is just something that's really, really close to my heart and something that I've worked a lot on, especially racial disparities in death penalty cases. And then um, I also worked um, in D.C. for the Public Defender Service. So I had some of those experiences. Uh, but never a murder trial, but I, also, but I did work on appeals, pro bono appeals, for um, death penalty cases. Um, so that was um, something that... And so I read a lot of tra- trial transcripts, and I've also been in the courtroom a lot just for civil litigation. And um, so I was a lawyer, not for that long, um, because I was lucky as a junior lawyer to actually have the opportunity... To go in court and actually do a lot of trials, which, you know, a lot of um, young lawyers don't get a chance to do until they're much, much older. Um, And I love that part. I loved being in court. I loved, you know, I loved objecting and I loved, you know, uh, trying to trap hostile witnesses into sort of saying something that's inconsistent with something else that they had said before on the record or something that they had written down. I loved all sorts of things like that. So that was awesome. But unfortunately, as a trial lawyer, especially in a big law firm, I think being in the courtroom is like 5% of your day. And so I very quickly realized that I did not like being a lawyer outside the courtroom. And since that was the vast majority of my days, I wasn't really happy on a day-to-day basis. And um, I actually decided to not be a lawyer anymore because, I, uh, because of a novel, because of Tim O'Brien's In the Lake of the Woods, mm-hmm. um, which I love. It's one of my favorite novels. And it, and it may be that I love it so much because it helped me realize that I wasn't happy as a lawyer, and because uh, one day I was just sort of in, I had just finished three trials in a row, and um, and I was sort of relaxing on vacation, and I just read the book cover to cover in a restaurant, sitting by myself, and I loved it so much, and I was so happy, and I closed the book, and I thought, you know. It's been so long since I've been happy. And it just got me thinking that I should really try to find something to do on a day-to-day basis that makes me happy. Um, and I didn't think of writing at that time because I'd never been a writer before then. So um, I then went on to become a management consultant and, I, and then I was a dot-com entrepreneur and then the market crashed. Um, and when I was like eight months pregnant, I had to lay off 400 employees. Um, So then I needed many years to recover from the trauma of that experience. And so then I stayed home as a stay-at-home mom, which brings us to the third strand. Um, But in any case, so as a trial lawyer, even though I didn't like the experience of being a lawyer itself, when I started writing, It naturally came to me that I should use that experience and also the courtroom sort of drama because even in the little cases that I'd done, even though it didn't involve murders or anything, you know, dramatic like that, there was always something that happened that was surprising that wasn't supposed to happen. And something that you would think, why didn't we discover this a year ago when we first took the case on? And um, and I loved those discoveries, and I really liked being the one doing the discovery. Obviously, not the one being where it's being (laughs) sprung upon you, but um, but I love that. And so I immediately thought of putting this this um, novel into the setting of that murder trial. And I love sort of I loved writing those scenes because it was just so much fun to sort of feel like I was back in the courtroom except that I could sort of control the witnesses and have them, you know, have them say exactly what I wanted them to say, which never, ever happened. So it was really awesome. And I loved that experience. Um, so I think I will do one quick passage um, from the beginning of um, day one of the murder trial. Uh, where the prosecution the prosecutor makes the opening statements, um, so this is from a chapter uh, labeled Matt Thompson Matt Thompson is actually the prosecution 's primary first star witness. He was actually one of the victims, um, one of the patients who was uh, in the submarine that night and he suffered burns and his fingers fingers had to be amputated and he 's in the audience sort of watching the prosecutor make the opening statement. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my name is Abraham Patterly. I am the prosecutor. I represent the Commonwealth of Virginia against the defendant, Elizabeth Ward. Abe pointed his right index finger at Elizabeth and she startled as if she hadn't known that she was the accused. Matt stared at Abe's index finger wondered what Abe would do if he, like Matt, lost it. Right before the amputation, the surgeon had said, thank God your career is not too affected by it. Imagine being a pianist or a surgeon. Matt had thought about that a lot. What job could one have and not be too affected by amputation of the right index and middle fingers? He would have put lawyers in the category of not too affected, But now, looking at Elizabeth withering under Abe's simple gesture of pointing at her, the power that finger gave Abe, he wasn't sure. Why is Elizabeth Ward here today? You've already heard the charges. Arson, battery, attempted murder. Abe stared at Elizabeth before turning his body square to the jury box. Murder. The victims sit here, ready and eager to tell you what happened to them. A motion to the front row. And to the defendant's two ultimate victims, Kit Kozlowski, the defendant's longtime friend, and Henry Ward, the defendant's own 8-year-old son, who can't tell you themselves because they are dead. Miracle Submarine's oxygen tank exploded at about 8.25 p.m. on August 26, 2008, starting an uncontrollable fire. Six people were inside, three in the immediate area. Two died, four severely injured, hospitalized for months, paralyzed, limbs amputated. The defendant was supposed to be inside with her son, but she wasn't. She told everyone she was sick. Headache, congestion, the works. She asked Kit, the mother of another patient, to watch Henry while she rested. She took wine she'd packed to the creek nearby. She smoked a cigarette of the same type and brand that started the fire, using the same type and brand of matches that started the fire. Abe looked at the jurors. All of what I just told you is undisputed. Abe closed his mouth and paused for emphasis. Undisputed, he said enunciating it like four separate words. The defendant here, he pointed that index finger again at her, admits all this, that she intentionally stayed outside, faking an illness, and when her son and friend were being incinerated inside, she was sipping wine, smoking using the same match and cigarette used to set the blast, and listening to Beyoncé on her iPod. So, that's the part of the opening statement that we hear. Um, So so those are the two strands of my life, the immigrant strand and the trial one. And then the one that's probably most deeply uh, embedded in this novel is my parenting strand, uh, which is parenting um, kids who have chronic illnesses. So I have three boys ranging from 10, almost 11, to 17, 10, 15, and 17. And all three of them, bizarrely, have had all sorts of weird medical issues. They're all fine now, um, save for a couple of lingering things that are manageable. Um, but the thing that really led me to um, use the setting of the H Bot, the Miracle Submarine, is that I have experience doing that myself um, with my kids. So my oldest son was born deaf in one ear. And it's a neurological thing, it's, his ear itself is fine. Um, but um, there was just a lot of stuff when he was a baby and a toddler to try to figure it out—is this like a neurological thing that has other manifestations, other neuropathies, and things like that? So there were lots of hospital visits and things like that, as well as speech therapy and auditory processing therapy to help him to, you know, speak fine without any too many delays and things like that. Um, so therapy, but you know, by the time he was like three or so, everything seemed sort of settled and resolved. And then after that. Um, all of a sudden, he developed celiac disease and ulcerative colitis, really bad, bad ulcerative. So totally unrelated, which seemed really sort of unfair to me. Um, you know, like, doesn't this kid have, like, enough issues? Like, and when we finally settled on one and sort of resolved it, then do we have to have yet another thing that's completely unrelated? Um, and some of that sense, I think, is in the novel as well. But in any case, so, um, so for celiac disease, you know, you have to do gluten-free diets, which now would be probably easy, or maybe not easy, but like, you know, fine. Like, they have gluten-free options at Disney World. We were just there. Um, unfortunately, you know, 13 years ago, or whenever this was, yeah, 13 years ago, they didn't have that. And so I had to sort of make everything from scratch, including preschool snacks and, you know, birthday cakes every time he went to a birthday party. I'd have to, you know, so I mean, these are not like life earth shattering things and, you know, but still day to day. It sort of affected my life in a way that made myself me feel sorry for myself. And then um But even that was manageable. What wasn't manageable, and we just couldn't get under control, was the ulcerative colitis. Just none of the things that they were recommending, like medicines and treatments and things like that, nothing was working. This little guy was not gaining weight. He was throwing up, and he was crying and saying that everything hurt. So, you know, I think when something like that happens to your child, especially someone who's so little and, you know, if he's four, um, you become desperate to sort of try anything and up until that point I think I had been very much of a stickler for like oh do whatever your doctor tells you and like and if they give you you know uh, therapies to try or whatever being like okay I'm going to see the FDA studies that have approved this and you know I was very much like that and at this point I was just like I'll try anything as long as it doesn't hurt you know I'm gonna try it and one of my neighbors um who has a child who had a child who has a child um, on the autism spectrum, said that she was bringing this traveling mobile hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber to a place, a church parking lot near our house, ten minutes away. And she sent me some studies that showed that it might be effective for ulcerative colitis. So I decided to try it, and we went and visited. And my son, when he looked at the chamber, he pointed at it and he said, Look, it's a submarine because we had just watched the Beatles Yellow Submarine that summer for family movie night. So um, so from and it was blue, it was painted blue, so it was we called it the blue submarine from then on. But you go in with three other patients, just like what I described in the novel, and you just and the operator who operated our particular chamber was Vigilant, so safety conscious. So wouldn't let us go in with anything that could in spark a flame. So no electronics, certainly. Not even titanium glasses, because that can apparently spark a fire, um, just because of the presence of oxygen. And, you know, and he also gave us, like, all cotton clothing to change into before we went in and all that kind of stuff. And for the kids, you're sealed in for an hour at a time. So for the kids, he had... Um, Barney and Sesame Street and DVDs like that playing on uh, screens that were attached to the portals, like outside, and then with the sound fed in through the system that he had set up. But for the parents, there was really nothing to do because it was, you know, the same Sesame Street and Barney. You couldn't read. You couldn't read, yeah, because it's flammable, you know, yeah, so, yeah, so we couldn't, and also there was no light, it was, like, very dark, and, I mean, there was a little light, but not enough to read, Um, so all there was to do was just talk to each other about, and just tell our life stories to each other, and trade, and compare and contrast our lives with each other, and in that way, I got to know all of these families, and, Interestingly, I think my son had the least medical issues and, you know, he was the least disabled, if you will, in that he could run, he could jump, he could sing, he could talk to me, he could do all the things that I took for granted until then. And everybody else, you know, in our session time frame, it was usually the same families, you know, had severe autism. They... You know, some of them couldn't talk. And then they also had cerebral palsy, and so they had, you know, they couldn't uh, walk. And they, you know, needed feeding tubes and things like just to eat. Um, So it really made me, anyway, think about sort of life and what... And I felt guilty for thinking of myself and my child as having been unlucky before because I could now see comparatively that I was truly, truly blessed and lucky in that way. So it gave me a lot to think about, and it was just a really raw time, just very emotional and intense and intimate and made me think a lot about life and also made me learn a lot of the details about these other parents' lives and their feelings. And we became... Intimate enough that we sort of said things to each other that we probably wouldn't have to anyone else You know things that sort of make you ashamed to have said them about sort of how you feel about your life And maybe your child and the fact that you're a parent and all those things and so um, Once so actually I'll, I'll, I'll Tell you one of the reasons why I called it a miracle submarine so then at the end of the summer Um, My son actually did improve a lot. Like his gut healed, and you know, but it it could be the HVAC or it could be some of the others, many other things that we were trying at the same time. So I can't say for sure. But one thing that I'm fairly certain of is that it affected his hearing because what happened is at the end of the summer, we went to sort of check his hearing, um, make sure that the pressure, the daily pressurization didn't harm his ear in any way. We were really careful about that. Um, and when we were doing the hearing test, the audiologist looked at me and said, like, there's something wrong. And I just thought, ah, like, what did I do? Like, did I harm, you know, his e- one ear that's, that was hearing? And it actually turned out she was surprised because he gained some hearing in his previously deaf ear. And we didn't, we couldn't understand why and like how this could happen because it wasn't supposed to affect his hearing. That wasn't why we were doing it. And we sort of said, "Huh, that's interesting," and sort of let it go. Well, come to find out, and when I, when I was doing research for on Hbot for this novel, like ten years later, um, it turns out that Hbot is now. Um, it's not quite been FDA approved yet, but it's in like clinical trials for sudden deafness. So it does affect hearing in some way. And so I, I thought that was sort of, you know, cool. And anyway, so at that time, back in the summer, I told everybody about this in the chamber and they were like, Oh, it's a miracle. And I said, well, it's not a complete miracle because it's not completely back. It's just a little bit. And they said, well, then it's a little miracle. So we were like, yeah, it's our submarine of little, it's our blue submarine of little miracles, you know, like, so, um, so that, that was one of the working titles that I had before they completely changed everything
1: uh, about my title.
0: But anyway, so, um, so I, when I became a writer years later, I thought about, you know, writing a novel and I immediately thought of the setting. Because it had, it seemed like sort of the perfect crucible, you know, physically, because you're sealed in and also emotionally, just because of the intensity of the emotions um, that we were all feeling. And so it was really um, sort of a natural, like I was like, okay, well, I have to have that happen. And because we were so afraid about the risk of fire and we were so guarding against that, of course, that had to be the thing that I decided needed to happen in order to have everybody sort of come together. And then once I decided that, then, of course, I needed to have the murder trial be the setting when you know, we, we explore the after effects and we also try to figure out who done it and why and how. And then once I decided that, the final piece, the Korean immigrant strand, I was just thinking, well, maybe for my next novel, I'll explore this, you know, Korean family in Baltimore, because I I had really wanted to do that as well. And one of my friends, um, sitting at an indie store, um, indie bookstore in DC, Politics and Prose in the Cafe, he said, "Uh, Why don't you have the Korean immigrant family be the people who own it? And that way you can sort of like put it all together in one book. And I was like, that sounds really complicated. I don't know if I can pull that off, but I tried. And so hopefully, you know, it all came together into uh, a whole and a narrative that works. Um, And so that's um, pretty, I think we've gone for about 30 minutes. So I think that's um, about what I have to say about the novel. If there are any questions or anything.
1: I have a yeah. craft question. Sure. Yeah. And I figured um, the podcast will pick up since we're all close. Yeah, um, that's good. So there are so many perspectives and things are revealed slowly throughout. So it's it really pulls you in as a reader. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, as you were writing it, how that happens structurally, structurally. Like, were there a lot of rewrites? Were you focusing on certain characters and then figuring out where to place them? That right. come together?
0: So when I got an agent with this novel, there were four characters, there were four not characters, but there were four POV characters. Um, and I tried to do it so that for each day of the trial, each of the four characters got a turn at, as to what they were, you know, saying about that particular day and doing flashbacks and things like that. And Craft wise, I did write I did know who those four characters were going to be, and I did write them sort of in sequence. So I wrote all of the day one scenes first, and then all the day two, and then all the day three, and then all the day four. Um and then for consistency of voice, I think at some point in one of the many revisions that I did, I did pull all of the like young you chapters and just read them through and sort of revise so that the voice would be consistent and then same thing with Matt and all of that um and then my agent she's so brilliant and she said you know there are so many of these characters I just want to know more about and also I really think that um, it might be better if we have more characters that reveal more to us just from the who done it, how done it, why done it angle. And so I think I ended up taking out like you know just shortening a lot of the existing chapters to make room for some of the new characters, not the not the new characters, but the new POV voices. So I did that. And then, um, and I think that, so then it grew from four POV characters to seven POV characters at that point, or maybe six. And then when I went to my editor and we sold it, then the editor said, you know, I really want to hear from this character just because this character is just so fascinating to me. Like, I just want to know more about what she has to say. And... And I was like, okay, well, that's great. Except that she was except that she was telling me also that we needed to shorten the whole novel because it was like 145,000 words. And she was like, I think it should be more like 115,000 words. And I was like, well, that's a lot of words to cut out and like to have to add in more characters. So that was interesting. But I, I, So those chapters were really short for this one character. And I'm not going to say who any of the added characters are because, um, just for spoiler purposes, but, um, but it was really interesting that, you know, both my editor and my agent, who are people that I really trust and who really helped me to shape this into a much better book than it was when I first sold it to my, not sold it, uh, when I first got my agent, um, that we ended up having so many more characters. I just thought that was interesting that, like, that was the impulse from them was just that they liked these characters or were interested enough in them that they wanted to hear more from them. So I thought that was a good sign. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Well, I asked this question
1: another time, but I think the answer is so interesting. Yeah. Um, so when did you decide who who did it?
0: So yeah, um, I, I didn't. I didn't decide. I basically had to discover it myself. So I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, so I just like wrote it, and it was like. Ah. And e- even in my outline, I had like a one-page outline, and um, like, and the the first outline that I had before I started writing, like I, it has no resemblance whatsoever to, you know, to to the actual novel because in that I think what ends up happening is somebody ends up like doing this dramatic confession or something like that um, in court in that in that outline which I gave up very very quickly Um, but I didn't even know at the outline stage I was like whoever did it stands (laughs) up and says this you know it was like that it was that kind of a thing. And then, um, and the outline and the writing of the actual draft or an iterative process. So what I did was I would write like three chapters and then I would look at the outline and be like, well, that's totally wrong now. And then I would redo the outline and then I would write another three chapters and then I would redo the outline and so on and so forth until the end when I got it. And I started to probably have an inkling probably around the same time, like the readers might, um... And then once, yeah, like, who knows? Or, you know, but it wasn't until the very end. Even at the very end, like, I was like, oh, I, I really, I, I don't really know how this happened. And it was almost like I was writing the scene and it just sort of, like, came. Wow. Um, so that was sort of cool. Um, but also, like, nerve-wracking, because I was like, what if it doesn't come to me who did it? Like, how am I going to resolve it? Like, And I was thinking, well, I guess we could have it be that, Like, nobody ever finds out. Okay, so, in, in, you know, but in Tim O'Brien's In the Lake of the Woods, you never find out what happened to the mystery. You know, the wife disappears, and he gives you all these hypotheses, chapters, and then he never says what actually happened. And so it's infuriating in some ways, but I think that's one of the reasons why I love it so much because it makes me there's no resolution. So it keeps me thinking, like it keeps me thinking and talking to other people who read it. Like, what do you think happened? And then, you know, it's like this great discussion. And then like, you know, if I find out that you read that book, I will definitely engage you. You know, I will definitely be like, well, what do you think happened? Do you think that happened? Why? Why do you think that? I think this happened. So this is the kind of stuff that I just loved. And so, um, So I definitely thought about maybe never revealing who did it, mainly because I didn't know myself. But then I thought I probably won't be able to sell my novel or get an agent if I don't do that. So I really had better find out. And there's something magical, I think, about... I write in this little tiny nook. That's, like, seriously, this table is bigger than the room where I write. And I have this humongous house and and yet this nook that I write in has no window it's like a closet and the ceiling is like this tall so I can't even like write I I can't I don't even have a chair in it I have to sit on the floor and I have like a Korean table and something magical happens like when I sit down in front of it like just and I just start writing it just happens like I just it just comes And so I've come to have faith in that room. And, you know, so hopefully I won't ever move. Because I really need... Or whatever. But, um, yeah, so I don't really know. And this novel that I'm working on now, I have no idea what happened to the mystery of that either. And I really hope... And and I'm actually really, really excited about writing it because I want to know. You know, like sort of like how... If you read, like, the first chapter and the mystery were set up, you'd be like, oh, well, I want to keep on reading so that, you know, I find out what happens. I want to write it so that I can find out what happened because that's the only way that I'll find out. So
1: I'm sure you've heard that E.L. Doctorow quote about writing a novel is like driving home at night because yes. you can only see as far as the headlights. I love that. Yeah. I
0: love that. I, I, and I've told myself that so many times. Um, do, you guys know, do you guys all know that quote? Um, about yeah so because I love that quote because there are so many times and I don't even know what's going to happen by the end of the chapter let alone the end of the book and I get so stressed out about it and then I think of that quote that says you know you only have to worry about what you can see right in front of you at night driving it home and then I think okay and I know, you get home at the end yeah and somehow you do get home like you just somehow do you know hopefully. I don't know. I guess you could do that, and you could, like, end up somewhere else. Who knows, you know? Um, But, yeah, no, I I find that really, really comforting, and I love that so much, because I do know, like, what's going to happen in this paragraph that I'm writing, I hope, or in the sentence, and that's really what I need to know, and then just go from, you know, like Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, you know, like sentence by sentence. Or John
1: Didion, I write to find out what I think. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a million quotes like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) It's a popular...
0: Yeah, and then my favorite, Dorothy Parker's I Hate Writing, I Love Having Written. Do
1: you feel that, though?
0: I do, I really do. I hate writing so much. Like, so many times when I write down, I'm just like, why do I do this? This is so painful. I hate this so much. And then... But then you get, like, in the zone or whatever, and, you know, and then um, the next day, even if it's a really, really... Am I allowed to say first words? Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you'll believe it out. And even if it's like a shitty first draft, at the end of that, and even if it's a completely shitty draft, I just, I, I'm so, I go back the next day with like coffee or wine or whatever it is, and, and I read it, and I just feel so happy at having written something down. And even if I have a ton of editing that needs, so I love editing. I actually love editing, and I love revising. So, so that's the blessing. I think you have to love one or the other. You love. You have to either love writing or you have to love editing. Otherwise, I'm really not sure. I bet what over you can do. time you'll start to like. I used to hate writing too. You did. And I did for you know really long time, and then all of a sudden I realized I didn't
1: hate it anymore. And I think it's because you get the you start. You get this reward exactly like what you're saying. I love revision, and after a while, you realize it's part. It's all part of it, and
0: right. You know, I right. We'll see. Yeah, to, we'll see. I'll get back to it. Yeah, we'll see. see if you we'll see. see. Yeah, yes.
1: The explosion caused a lot of horror. You know, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of pain and uh, suffering and depression and uh, PTSD and everything else. Was that commented on in the book?
0: Was that what?
1: Did you comment? On that
0: much in the book. Um, On the, yes. Um, So one of the characters does have PTSD. Um, And in fact, um, one of the Korean characters talks about how the doctors uh, had diagnosed another character with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD as this American doctor calls it. And then she does a little riff on how Americans love shortening by everything trying to save seconds because that's just so important to americans which i find really interesting i i I have noticed that about about americans there's a lot of you know like shortening of things going on that um i i'm not sure really happens in other or certainly not in korean so but there is um there's a lot of depression there's a lot of ptsd matt the Uh, the doctor whose um, passage that I read out, um, thinking about the amputation of his fingers, um, suffers greatly by virtue of no longer having some of his fingers and also doesn't have, like, his palms and his uh, finger pads, even the remaining finger pads are all sort of, like, melted, right? So he doesn't have sensation in them anymore. And just what that does... You know, and so all sorts of things like that. That, and then one of the characters has a scar on her face, um, which you know, because she's young, I think, affects her more. And um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of that that I explore, I think, and you know, sort of the, and and the other thing is also. Um, just the relationships that change as a result of having gone through something like that and sort of thinking to yourself like, you know, if only I had been here versus there, then I would be the one that's dead or I, or my yes. child would be the one that's alive. You know, so those of types that. of, yeah, those types of things. I think that's so interesting, yeah. Yes? And then the,
1: <clears throat> the whole process of the trial caused a lot of trauma for Especially the the mother of the
0: boy that died. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially given that she's the defendant, so you know that's that's a lot. Um, Yeah. No, that's. Did you have anybody else?
1: Has there been any movie interest?
0: It's so funny. I I was doing an interview earlier today. And they asked me that, and it was like like a Google Docs interview, you know, so I was writing. And so I was like, wait, hold on one second. And so I asked my um, uh, book-to-film TV agent if I could say what I was going to say. And he was like, yeah, just keep it really vague, but keep it like that. So he gave me an approved thing to say, um, which was... (laughs) There's lots of interesting stuff going on that I can't reveal at this moment. But it's definitely, stuff is definitely happening. And he also said that I could say this, which is that my kids are very excited by some of the names of the people that I've been having calls with and stuff. So, so that's, that, those are the two things that he said I could say.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else? I have a question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How did you start writing, making the leap from these
0: other... Right, things to actually writing.
1: Actually, how did you start?
0: Yeah, so I actually have an essay about this in um, the Washington Post um, from a few weeks ago um, because enough people were asking me this question. I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. How did I... Um, So what happened was that I wanted to, after I went through this series of illnesses with my kids, oh, and I didn't say with my two other kids, like one of my other kids had like anaphylactic food allergies and, you know, like EpiPen and, you know, he could die. And it's just scary. And then another one, he's totally fine. In fact, it turns out that there was nothing wrong with him. But he has, um, when he was like a two-month-old, you know how they measure the kid's um, head circumferences? So his his head uh, head circumference was like way below one percentile. So this is like two percentile, this is one percentile, and then my son's was like down here. So they said, you know, he has something called microcephaly, which you guys might remember from the Zika virus, Zika, Zika. Mm -hmm. That's the condition that's associated with it, where like your brain doesn't grow, And your head, and that's why your skull is small, because it doesn't, because the brain isn't growing. So it just, you know, remains the same. So they thought for sure that he had, well, he does technically have microcephaly, because microcephaly just means small head. Um, And then, so we panicked. We, you know, they thought maybe his skull was fused, so they might have to do, like, brain surgery. Like, there was all this stuff going on. And from the time he was two months old until he was about nine years old, he had to undergo like MRIs regularly and lots of like neurological developmental tests to see if he was, you know, um, developing. His brain was developing, and it turned out by the time he was nine that like they were like, yeah, he's fine. I think he just has a weird shaped head. He has a really small, pointy head. You sort of have a small pointy head, like meaning me. I I guess I do. And I was like, okay, this would have been really nice to find out a long time ago. But anyway, um, so everything's fine, but there was just a lot that I went through. And a lot that I went through that I wanted to write about with respect to doctors and how they treat you and, you know, insurance companies and how to overcome some of the challenges of that, all that kind of stuff. So then... Um, I just needed to write, like, I just needed to write, and there was this incident where I was at a Whole Foods, and I was so upset by, like, the fact that they didn't have anything that I could feed my kids, because between the food allergies and the ulcerative colitis and the celiac, and that I just started crying, and so, anyway, so my Washington Post essay is about, like, it's actually titled, Crying in Whole Foods, but anyway... (laughs) And I think this first line is like, I cried in whole f- I became a writer because I cried in Whole Foods or something like that. But anyway, so I wanted to write about all of these experiences, and I started writing. And it just made me feel so much better in a way that like nothing else did, because there was nobody that I could talk to about all the experiences that I was having. And my husband was away on trial. He's a trial lawyer, so he was away on trial at that time. And I just started writing. And I had never written before. Um, I mean, you know, I'd written, like, academically and, like, briefs and stuff, but never, like, sort of pouring my heart out and trying to analyze myself and things like that. And, um, and then it got to the point where I wanted to... Um, so I took classes at the Writer Center in Bethesda and um, some online classes at a place called Gotham, uh, which is in New York, but they have great online classes. So I took classes on personal essays, and I started sharing some of this stuff. And then it occurred to me that, you know, I'm not sure that I should be sharing all of these. You know, at that point, we still had a lot of these medical illness issues that were, gone, that were still ongoing, that hadn't been resolved. And I just didn't know if it was fair to my kids that I'm writing about them and revealing details about their medical issues and all that kind of stuff. And it made me uneasy. So I didn't want to really submit it. And my husband said, "You know, why not turn to fiction?" And I was like, "Fiction? What?" what? And then um, I took one of these essays that I was really proud of, um, but that I didn't want to, you know, publish. And I changed it, you know, a little by like that was like my first attempt at fiction. I took an essay and I changed the character so that she wasn't exactly me. And I changed the kids so they weren't exactly my kids like they were like girls instead of boys and my husband was sort of you know He was sort of a jerk and my husband is really not and you know things like that and um, and I made the woman like be a former doctor instead of a former lawyer and all and just little things but the heart of it was really still the same as my essay that I had written and and then I submitted that, and that was the first short story that I think I submitted. And and it got accepted by, like, the first, and it was accepted by Pank, which is Roxane Gay's um, literary journal back then. And so that gave me confidence, and then I took more fiction classes, and then I started writing short stories, and I shorted, started, like, delving into my childhood and immigration, and I wrote more personal essays about that experience because I felt more comfortable writing about my own uh, experiences and somehow it sort of all came together and then at the end of the day I sort of thought you know this fiction thing I really love these short stories I love writing stories where I can just sort of like make anything happen and then I wanted to write a novel and then that's you know here we are yeah. So. I have one more question. Yeah. What are the orange things on the cup? Oh, those are, the orange things are supposed to be, they're invented. Yeah, well, that's supposed to be the cigarette. It's supposed to be the cigarette burns. It's like each dot is a cigarette. You know, like if you yeah. took a cigarette, you know? Yeah, okay. So we had problems, okay. So, I mean, they look pretty, but I... Yeah, they look really pretty, and I in love top them. Top sky. Yeah, it's a you're really, burns. exactly. Yeah, no, it is true. Um, no, it was supposed to be before. There were um, like burn things, like on the corner, so that it looked like it was like a picture that was like being burned. You know what I'm saying? And then all the foil is all the ashes and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I love the cover so much. But yeah, but when we first got this cover. It was the red dots were gold. And we were like, what are the... Okay, and then and I was like, I love this cover, but what is this yellow thing all over the place? And they were like, oh, they're cigarette burns. And I was like, well, why would cigarette burns be yellow, like gold? And they were like, because they're pretty, because gold is pretty, and it's more foil. And I was like, well, oh, but it doesn't make sense. And so, and my agent thought the same thing. So they were like, yeah, we'll play around with it, and we'll make it you know so that it actually looked like cigarette burns um by the time the final jacket comes out but we were preparing for the advanced reader copy so we were like fine we'll just like stick with the red and then by the time the jacket came out we were so in love with the cover and people loved it so much that we were like whatever you you can just leave it the way it is
1: yeah good thing no one said well Red burns are actually black. <laughs> well
0: I did, I did, I totally did. I, in fact I actually like, you know, Google imaged like cigarette burns and there were stuff no like that. Ones. Yeah, 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 I yeah, know. And then I, I like sent it to them and I was like, Do you see how it's like looks blistery and like the edges are like this and and maybe we can make it grey, you know, so it looks like the ash, you know? And they were like, Yeah, that's really nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then they they just sort of like were like, Yeah, we're gonna go with this. So no, it's I, I loved I love the concept so much that yeah, I'm it's great. really happy with it. Yeah. But you found you figured it out. You
1: you only understand it until after you've read it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the section breaks too. The section breaks are cigarette burns. Here. Like that looks mm. that's that looks more like a cigarette burn, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Any other?
1: Who are some of your favorite writers or books?
0: Um, okay, so favorite writers and books. Um, I love um, Mystic River by Dennis Lehane. It is probably the one that I had by my side the most when I was writing this book. It's sort of a model. Like it's sort of a model for this book as far as plot points and sort of when in the what percentage of the novel you find out certain things and things like that. What about Snow on Cedars? So Snow Falling on the Cedars is a good one. Um, that's a really good... Um, that was actually my comp. My two comps when I sent out letters to agents mm-hmm. for queries were, you know, this is sort of a literary court drama like Snow Falling on Cedars mm-hmm. and like um, Crispo uh Midwives. So those were the two. Um, I also love... This has really nothing to do with my novel, but um, except that it, it's written from all different perspectives Is I love Jennifer Egan, and it also has um, to do with autism, Uh, at least in part. Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad, I just love that novel so much. And I love how each voice is so different, and that is one thing that I really worked hard to try to do in my novel, is to make it so that the voices are distinct, so that You would never read, like, Matt's chapter and go, oh, I wonder if that's Young, the mother. Like, you would just never do that. They just totally are different. And so I love that. And I love that fact that, you know, as a a former McKinsey consultant, I love PowerPoint, and I love that Jennifer Egan had a a chapter that was written in PowerPoint. I just think that's so cool. Did you consider writing any of the POVs in first person? Um, so, you know, the very first chapter is in first person. Um, yeah, the very first chapter starts, my husband asked me to lie. Mm-hmm. And I loved that line. And mainly because I loved that line and didn't want to change it. I didn't want to go to third person for the first chapter. But also because the first chapter sort of serves as a prologue of sorts. It's the incident chapter. And then, and that's written from Young Yu's voice in first person. And then after that, we move to the trial a year later. Mm -hmm. And all the rest of the chapters are done in third person. And I also did it as sort of a wink wink to sort of let the readers know that, in my opinion anyway, like Young Yu is sort of the main character. Like the mother, she's the mother of the immigrant family. And to me, she probably has more word count the highest word count of all the characters and also she starts and ends the book and she start when she first starts the book we hear her voice in first person so yeah any other
1: okay great thank you so much angie thank you thank you you so much